Welcome to the TBE Richmond Podcast. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On this feed, you'll hear sermons, teachings, music, conversations with guests, and so much more from us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Thanks for learning and growing with us. Chavez. Acknowledging my spotty track record with book and movie recommendations, I highly suggest everyone who hasn't yet read Emily Tampkin's book, Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities, do so. The issue of what it means or doesn't to be a good Jew or bad Jew, she opens, is particularly fraught at this moment in US history. Writing not as a historian, but as a journalist, Tamkin weaves a roughly 100-year history of Jewish-American politics, culture, identities, and arguments, covering issues including assimilation, race, Zionism and Israel, affluence, philanthropy, finance and poverty, politics, and social justice. It's a mouthful just to say. One of many things that becomes clear in reading the book is that behind questions of good or bad Jews are much deeper concerns about Judaism in the 21st century, individual identity, community, and power. Just like the best marriage counselors recognize that a fight between partners over the dishes is never about, or just about, the dishes, the best rabbis and Jewish leaders I know seem to understand that a question about halakha is never just about Jewish law. And those questions of leadership and continuity, they often reflect deeper anxieties about what we hold dear, perhaps, though not always worded this way, about um, our search for meaning and the holy. This anxiety can sometimes manifest itself as a personal attack on another. I've tried to learn from the best leaders of all backgrounds that on some level, individual attacks can be a form of projection, revealing more about the one hurling insults than the one they hurt. And still in my own role, I have a limited sense of the sting such harmful rhetoric causes regardless of intent. And while I know how it can cut deeply, I try to recall Fights about the dishes are seldom just about the dishes. Questions about halakha are rarely just about Jewish law, and attacks on leadership are scarcely just about the leader. This is why I find Parshat Korach so powerful. Korach depicts a two-pronged rebellion against the leadership of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron. But the rebellion has as much to do with grief and disagreement as it does with leadership. Korach, Datan, and Aviram, along with 250 other prominent men, accused Moses and Aaron of going too far. For all the community are holy, all of them, and the divine is in their midst. Like all good demagogues, the Hertz commentary in front of you points out, Korach poses as the champion of the people against the alleged dictatorship of Moses and Aaron. I'd add that Korach's demagoguery shares one more key characteristic with history's most notorious power seekers. In appealing to the desires and prejudice of the people, Korach says something that is partially true. The whole congregation can be holy, and divinity is in their midst. But rather than making a rational argument for some systemic change, a change that, mind you, would still be against divine will at this moment in time, Korach's faction focuses just on the current leaders, and in seeking to advance themselves, loses sight of the whole community they claim to represent. This, our sages tell us, is the epitome of a machleket she'eno l'shem shemaim, that is, a disagreement or dispute not for the sake of heaven, contrary to those that are for the sake of heaven and therefore destined to endure. In his 16th century commentary, 
on the Mishnah, Ovadia ben Avraham of Bertanoro, commonly just known as the Bertanora, explains the distinction. The argument which is for the sake of heaven, the purpose and aim that is sought from that argument is to arrive at the truth. Whereas, he continues, an argument which is not for the sake of heaven, its desired purpose is to achieve power and the love of contention. This, he conclude, concludes, is Korak's error. His aim and the aim of his, the rebels with him and their ultimate intent was to achieve honor and power. We could layer on top of the Bartonora's critique that co-conspirators Datan and Aviram lie, or at least severely misrepresent the facts about their own condition, claiming that Moses brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. I'll return to the second part of their allegation in just one second, but for now I'll note the first part uses the language of liberation, the idea of divine promise, to advance the cause of our oppressor, the ideology of Egypt. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing, they cloak their narrow-mindedness in the revolutionary ideals of our exodus. As for the to have us die in the wilderness part, let's acknowledge as the rabbi did earlier where we, this takes place in the story of our people. We are barely a year out of Egypt, and in a relatively short time we've endured tremendous heartache. In last week's portion alone, our scouts discourage our people from entering Israel, we revolt against leadership, God decides that none of the adults in our community will see the land that was promised and destines us to spend 40 years in the desert. Oh, and the scouts who spoke ill of the land, they die of a plague, and those who defiantly march on to conquer the land despite God's warnings are destroyed by our arch enemies. It's not going great. In short, we're deeply, sorry. In, no, it's, in short, we're deeply hurting. So are Korah and his faction rebelling against Moses and Aaron and in the process God Yes, but I'll put forward again that questions of leadership aren't just about the leaders. Perhaps in this case, they're about trauma, grief, and suffering. In his book, The Art of Communicating, the late Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh observes that our suffering is connected to the suffering of the world. As an aid for confronting this condition, Han prescribes in part deep listening and loving speech and cautions against lying or exaggerating when communicating with others. The goal, he says, should be to communicate for the sake of understanding. But he acknowledges one reason we have trouble communicating with others is that we often try to communicate when we're angry. We suffer, and we don't want to be alone with that suffering. I believe this message about the need for compassionate communication, as opposed to what Buddhism calls wrong speech, and we might consider part of Lashon Hara. Compassionate communication is what the divine tries to express in the two signs established in Parshat Korach. After the rebels, Moses and Aaron present their incense offering, a fire goes forth from Adonai and consumes the 250 contestants offering incense. Immediately thereafter, God tells Moses to instruct Aaron's son Eleazar as follows. Remove the firepans of those who have sinned at the cost of their lives and let them be hammered into sheets as plating for the altar. For once they have been used for an offering to the divine, they have become sacred. And let them serve as a sign to the people of Israel. And after he does so, verse 5 continues, It was to be a reminder to the Israelites so that no outsider, one not of Aaron's offspring, should presume to offer incense before the divine and suffer the fate of Korach and his band. In the Talmud, Reish Lakish extrapolates that this verse teaches us, 
one may not perpetuate or exacerbate or literally strengthen a dispute. And that language is almost exactly paralleled by Rashi in his own commentary on the Parsha, who says that Korach takes himself, lakach et atzmo, from the congregation, and in so doing, he separated himself from the community, lehachazik b'machloket, in order to maintain, or again, literally to strengthen, dissension. Whereas Korach deliberately divides himself from our community, and in so doing, harms the entirety of the congregation, God's prescription, the eternal sign we're left to confront, reminds each of us that every individual in our community has an equal capacity for holiness and should act in a way that fosters the whole. Each offering, even those expressing a dissenting opinion, ultimately affects the health of the, all those who wrestle with divinity. None of us have a monopoly on the truth. But as Thich Nhat Hanh so eloquently puts it, our communication is not neutral. Every time we communicate, we either produce more compassion, love, and harmony, or we've produced more suffering and violence. Some of you may know I've been blessed this year to participate in Shalom Hartman Institute's Fellowship for Hillel Professionals. In fact, I'll get to travel with them uh, to conclude my experience with 10 days of learning in a few weeks in Jerusalem alongside a truly remarkable cohort. I'm happy to talk more about Shalom Hartman Institute at any time. This is not an advertisement. But for those who don't know, it's a center for thought and education focused on matters of Jewish peoplehood, Zionism, democracy, and pluralism, just to name a few of the delicate but important topics they explore. As part of their work, the Institute authored a white paper in fall 2019 in which they begin as follows. Courageous leadership and open discourse in Jewish institutions are under threat with ramifications for the immediate health of those institutions and for the future leadership of the community. The authors continue, the range of ideas and ideologies permitted as part of Jewish public discourse is narrowing, and observe that until now, the loud consequences to individual leaders have been significant, but of even greater importance are the silent effects already damaging the entire Jewish community. As a rabbinical student and a so-called Jewish professional, I perhaps selfishly believe the whole 30-page report is required reading. But for now, I'll share the executive summary concludes with a call to action for each and every one of us. As a community, we must take responsibility for building a more ethical Jewish public square in which bad behavior is implicitly and explicitly delegitimized and our community lives its professed values. This leads us to the portion's second sign which appears after each chieftain and Aaron place their staffs in the tent of meeting. When Aaron's staff is found to have miraculously produced blossoms and born almonds, the Holy One says to Moses, put Aaron's staff back before the pact, to be kept as a lesson to rebels, so that their mutterings against me may cease lest they die. Today's Haftorah, a section that holds similar questions of leadership and community, invokes near-identical language for rebellion that's helpful here. Following Saul's second coronation, Samuel chastises the Israelites for demanding a king. The, the, the divine your God is your sovereign. So Samuel reminds all of us, if you will revere the divine, worship God, and obey God, and will not flout the Holy One's command, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Holy One, your God, well and good. But if you do not obey the Holy One, umritem et pi Hashem, and you flout divine command, the hand of God will strike you as it did your fathers. In both our Torah and Haftarah portions, the word used for rebels or flouting from the root mem resh could be taken as a hint for those who make things bitter, also mem resh. 
If I could be bold for a moment, I'd argue this is obviously implied by the shared root and the invocation of God's metaphorical mouth at Pi Hashem, the place where we taste bitterness. Rather than presenting ideas, fostering a meaningful discourse on competing ideologies, taking the time to listen to those with whom we disagree, even passionately and within our own communities, there are those who launch personal attacks, misrepresent ideas in a manner that elevates fear and anxiety, and needlessly embitter the lives of our leaders and our community. To be clear, I do not ascribe malice to most who engage in uncivil discourse those who shy from encounter with what they might feel like terrifying difference, or those who, in the words of Yehuda Kurtzer, default so commonly to litigation as a way of confronting our differences rather than the ancient and modern art of persuasion. Nor do I, by the way, engage debate for the sake of debate. There are surely those who engage in demagoguery and performance theater for the sake of advancing their own status and who do real harm in the process. As Rabbi Rachel Cowan, Zichronel Leverha, commented, Korach dies, but his descendants live on. We certainly see them today. Cynical, political, religious, and communal leaders cloaking self-interest in the language of democracy, nationalism, or God. In wielding power in such short-sighted ways, these modern-day rebels present an even greater threat to God's creation than Korach to Moshe's leadership. Rabbi Cowan's 2008 argument, by the way, feels extremely prescient on this first yort site of Roe v. Wade. Questions about leadership are rarely just about leaders. And it feels like oftentimes our own suffering prevents us from seeing the suffering of others. Even more, it keeps us from seeing their humanity, from honoring their latent holiness, and from acting in ways that reflect God is still in our midst. Especially as we begin the summer month of Tammuz, which will start the three weeks of mourning leading up to the temple's destruction, it's hard to ignore the consequences of disdainful speech and wrongful action toward one another. Near the end of Bad Jews, Tampkin recalls her own visit to Israel and contemplates the destruction of the Second Temple too. Her guide invited her, and she implicitly invites us, to think of it as relevant today, the idea that surrounded by Romans, Jews could turn on one another. Suffering is a part not just of the Jewish story, but the human story. We're humans, after all. And there is too much trauma and oppression in our history and our present for us to use the language of our oppressors against ourselves in the manner of Korach and his embittered rabble. We can't let ourselves or our community further our own heartache by calling each other bad Jews, questioning their Jewishness, or God forbid, losing sight of each person's inherent holiness simply because we disagree with them. It's distracting at best, and it's destructive at worst. Every one of us has an inner Korach and Moshe. And despite the fear, anger, anxiety, greed, or doubt that Korach represents, he's often there to keep us safe. But as the days get hotter, the temperature of our political discourse rises, and the state of our climate, both social and ecological, reaches a fever pitch. We all have the ability to choose how we will contribute to the building of a just, equitable, and dare I say, holy society. So in the times ahead, may we each lovingly hold our inner Korach, courageously embrace our inner Moshe, and authentically lead from wherever we are in crafting of a compassionate, caring community together. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. 
This has been the TBE Richmond Podcast. Once again, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. On behalf of all of us here at Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia, thanks for listening. I hope this episode was uplifting and enriching. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And please rate and review us so others will have an easier time joining the conversation. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Learn more about our dynamic, warm, and passionate congregation affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism at www.bethelrichmond.org. Until next time, shalom y'all.